But first, we start with murder and mayhem in Metro Vancouver, including the brazen daylight deadly shooting of Bikram Deep Randawa, who was a provincial corrections officer. He worked at Fraser Regional Correction Center, gunned down uh, near a gas station in Delta on Saturday. Wow, have a listen to this now. This is Scott Miller. He was near the site of the shooting, and here's what he saw. We heard uh, about six shots, and somebody was joking. It's like, oh, don't worry about it. That's just gunshots. Happens all the time. We saw two guys running across the street, across 72nd Avenue, towards the white spot. Later on, we heard six more shots, and then uh, all of a sudden, the restaurant manager came and said, everybody get inside. We're locking this all down. You hear this stuff happening in the Lower Mainland, but it's it's not something you think you're going to see in your in your neighborhood, obviously. Okay, one of the witnesses there uh, near the site of that shooting of a corrections provincial corrections officer on Sunday in Delta. Lots of other mayhem going on in the weekend as well, including a young woman shot uh, in Burnaby. The victim there recovering, police saying that was a targeted shooting, and the discovery of human remains found in Hope. Uh, the, are confirmed now those of 48-year-old Trina Hunt, who had been missing. Let's discuss all these now with my guest, John Daly, the great global news investigative reporter and the for, and the host of CKNW's Back on the Beat. John, thanks for coming on. It's a pleasure to be with you, Mike. Okay, John, let's talk about the shooting of this uh, prison guard here. I mean, how unusual is this? Very unusual. And, uh, you know, I, as, as horrible as it sounds, I do hope some good comes of this because I think uh, peace officers, and let's face it, uh, Bikram Deep Randawa was a sworn peace officer working for corrections, uh, young guy, just 29, uh, going to university uh, at night. Uh, you know, this. Uh, hopefully cops across the Lower Mainland are sort of, you know, getting their eyes up and their ears up and, and sort of saying, you know, this is this is hitting the wall. Like, this stuff's got to stop. Because, you know, it comes and goes, Mike. It comes and goes. We see these things. We saw that shooting uh, uh, Dolly Wall from the Brothers Keepers get whacked in front of uh, Cardero's and Cole Harbor. Uh, public, yeah. vicious. And, and, you know, frankly, the only reason they caught the uh, alleged hitman in that was because uh, his buddies chased after him and stabbed the guy in the eye. And yeah. uh, so the cops had a blood trail. And, uh, you know, the guy couldn't get away. So, uh, you know, these things do get solved, but it, sometimes it takes years. And uh, this one, I think, is going to touch a nerve. And I'm hoping that some good comes of this horrible case. Uh, you know, this poor fella. Uh, he could have, it may be, and there's some discussion, that maybe it was a case of mistaken identity. Yeah. Uh, what we what we do know about it, Mike, is that the uh, killers. There were four guys in a uh, in a, uh, a car, or three guys in a car, and one guy running around with a you know a hoodie and a, a mask over his face uh, with the gun, and he's on video. Um, so they've got a, a vehicle that uh, they found in Burnaby burned out. Uh, that was apparently the car that they used to get away. They'll obviously uh, ditch that and, and jump into another car. Hopefully they'll be searching the traffic cameras and they'll figure out, uh, you know, where these guys went, what kind of vehicle they were in, unless that was another burner car. You know, we got gangs with burner cars, burner phones, uh, toss, toss their guns. They got an infinite supply of uh, guns and ammo. And, uh, you know, frankly, for my taste, uh, you know, I've had the biscuit with this. I think it's just too much. 
Okay, it was very disturbing to see a prison guard gunned down like this in broad daylight and social media just alive with like speculation. What what could have been the motive here? There's a lot of gangsters housed at that particular prison where this guy worked. There's been violent altercations there. Some speculation was, well, was it related to his work or was it a a mistaken identity case? We don't know. And, And we're waiting for officials to give us more information on this, John. But have a listen to this. This is Chris. Lakoff here is spokesperson for the Delta Police about this particular killing. They're looking into his personal life, um, whether or not this could have been a case of mistaken identity, and also whether or not this had any links to Mr. Randawa's um, profession as a uh, corrections officer. We just wanted to clarify that Mr. Randawa is uh, not considered to be known to police, uh, so I uh, wanted to make sure that information uh, got out to the public. Okay, we continue to follow that one very closely. Another shooting on the weekend, John Burnaby, RCMP, saying a 25-year-old woman in stable condition after being shot uh, early Sunday morning. Now, police are also describing this as a, as a targeted shooting, but we don't know if this is gang-related shooting. I mean, there's a good chance it's not, right? Yeah, it sounds like it's not gang-related, yeah. although, uh, you know, her assailant obviously had a gun. And we know that the gangs are the suppliers and the keepers of guns. So, uh, you know, was it a personal vendetta uh, from a guy who may have connections to gangs? So there may be a gang connection to it, even if it isn't a gang-motivated killing. Okay, when you talked about earlier, John, your frustration, and I think the public shares a lot of this about the mayhem that we see going on. These shootings are brazen, happening in broad daylight near places where people are gathered with their families. And how do you think the cops are doing in this fight against this gang war? Like, who's winning here, the cops or the gangsters? I think the gangsters are winning, and I don't like it. And, uh, you know, this all comes at a time when basically police are under the microscope for lack of enforcement in all sorts of different ways. Uh, you know, the, the parks that are taken over, Strathcona, Beacon Hill Park, the mass protests where nothing happens, intersections and bridges get shut down for hours and hours on end. Uh, we've got the defund the police movement, school liaison programs cancelled in Vancouver and New West. The gangsters, as I say, they've got an unlimited supply of guns and ammo and they seem to be able to murder people in public areas and, and get away with stuff. So, you know, there's something wrong here. Frankly, I think it's time for Mike Farnworth, BC's top cop, solicitor general and public safety minister, to sit down with David Eby and basically call for an audit. I think we need a performance audit and a cost audit. You know, I mean, what are these guys getting paid? Look, they've got stingers. You know what a stinger is? No, tell me. It's it's basically a fake cell phone tower, so they can intercept Mm. uh, gangsters' cell phone calls. Now, they have to get a warrant. The problem with that is that to get an authorization for that, you've got to write 100 pages of an affidavit, and then it has to pass muster. And then after a while, after 90 days, you've got to let the bad guys know that you've been listening to them. So there's all sorts of problems in getting on top of this. But between paid informants, uh, undercover agents, Mr. Big, uh, you know, intercepts, wiretaps, uh, and and stingers, they should be able to get on top of this, but they don't seem to be able to get on top of it. And I want to know why. What is this costing us, uh, both in terms of human life and in terms of dollars? You know, we've got all kinds of police agencies out there. There's CF, CFSEU, Combined Force and Special Enforcement Unit. There's uh, IHIT, the Integrated Homicide Investigation Team. Uh, you know, you've got all your regular patrol officers in Surrey and North Van and uh, Vancouver and so forth. 
you know, uh, how is it that the cops uh, don't seem to be able to get on top of the criminals, particularly these violent, brazen, daylight, shooting, murdering gangsters? All right, welcome back to the show as we continue talking about the murder and mayhem, the gang war raging on the streets of Metro Vancouver. My guest is John Daly, the very fine former global news investigative journalist, one of the best crime reporters in B.C. John is the host of Back on the Beat on CKNW. John, the very sad news here in this case of 48-year-old Trina Hunt of Port Moody. She disappeared back in January, uh, reported missing. Police at the time of her disappearance said they did not think that foul play was involved, but now police confirming this very sad news that human remains discovered in Hope on March 29th are indeed those of the 48-year-old Trina Hunt, and police now saying this is a homicide case. Foul play is suspected. What jumps out at you about this case? Well, it's very, very weird, Mike. Uh, You know... Uh, nobody wants to cast dispersions, but, uh, you know, the massive searches, all the volunteers, all the efforts, and uh, now it looks like she was either abducted and murdered or uh, murdered and body dumped. Uh, you know, I mean, obviously, uh, one can only wonder whether or not the police have been pinging the cell phone towers and trying to figure out where, what her last uh, movements were. Uh, you know, it doesn't look like a gang thing to me. Uh, there was never any indication of that. So, you know, the next normal uh, assumption is that it's somebody who knew her. And if that's the case, let's pray that IHIT is able to uh, crack this one because uh, this has been a, just a thorn in the side. But it, it's always been a, a bit of an odd case. You know, the police were sort of quiet on it. They allowed the searches to go by. You always the, the feeling I had, Mike, was that they knew something. Somehow somebody knew something, and it was just a matter of time. And, of course, that's exactly what happened. It was a matter of time. Now, do they have some evidence? Are they going to be able to get something uh, now that they've finally found her remains? I don't know, but I sure pray. I mean, what a shame. Beautiful young woman, and... Uh, you know, she's gone, and uh, it's still a mystery. Okay, we continue to follow that case very closely. Let's take a few phone calls here in the time we got left. John, this is uh, Brad calling from Maple Ridge. Hey, Brad. Hey, Mike. Hey, John. Thanks for having me on. Uh, I just want to comment on the safety in the Lower Mainland. Uh, I do feel safe, and I do think police are doing everything they can to stop the gang violence. What we need is deterrence. We have roadside checks for now COVID and prior drinking and driving. That deters people from traveling and from drinking and driving. What we need is deterrence in the law. We have politicians removing mandatory minimums for sentencing regarding firearms Mm -hmm. offenses. And we need to get stricter on gun law with criminals. It's not the legal gun owners. It's the criminals committing the offenses. And there is nothing deterring them from doing that. Thank you. John Daly, your thoughts. Well, you know, we have seen, I agree, we need more deterrence, and we have seen CFSU has actually done a pretty good job of pulling cars over and getting drugs and guns out of them. Uh, You know, to be honest with you, uh, I talk to many cops, and they tell me these these cases are getting bargained down, the charges are getting uh, softened when they get to court. Uh, There are guys who uh, have shot people, and they basically served a day in jail, and they end up with an ankle bracelet. So it's a bit bizarre. I think the public needs to get its back up. 
Uh, we need to put more pressure on the politicians. The politicians have to do a review of the police, put some heat on it. And yeah, maybe we got to change the laws. And, the, you know, they had a thing in, in New York State called the Sullivan Law. So if you got caught in the commission of an offense with a gun, you got a minimum of seven years. Now, that was, you know, later found to be a bit uh, severe. But on the other hand, it sure cut down on the number of gun cases. Okay, let's take another call here. Jeffrey on the line in Surrey. Hey, Jeffrey. Oh. Hi, go ahead. Hi, this is Jeff Sensingdale. Uh Anyways, uh, regarding what uh, Mr. Daly said earlier uh, with Mr. or David Eby and Pat Mike Farnworth uh, taking action to do an audit, I think that that's definitely one of the, that's the first time I'm actually hearing a reporter say something like that. And I think that when you look back at the Surrey 6 murder, what was the situation that uh, dropped the ball that was caused the major injustice in that was a police officer, a sworn officer who actually got caught stealing. I don't know if you remember that detail or not. And then what happens in our courts, uh, I could tell you there's a lot of RCMP officers and probably other municipal police officers that are on the wrong side of the law, but they're sworn officers. Regarding the shooting, I think that it's absolutely irresponsible for the B.C. Government Employees Union leadership to make any comments on this issue. When okay. Okay, Jeff, th- thank, thank you for your call. Uh, we've, we're just out of time, but I do appreciate you calling in. John, I really appreciate your time today. Thank you very much for coming on. Let's get the audit going. All right, welcome back to the show. Let's talk about the sexual harassment scandal that's rocking the Canadian military and the Justin Trudeau government right now. The former chief of the defense staff, retired General Jonathan Vance, under investigation by military police right now. He's accused of sexual misconduct, which he has denied. Also, Defense Minister Harjit Sajjan on the hot seat here. What did the minister know about this? When did he know it? Sajjan made the rounds of the TV talk shows on the weekend here. He took some tough questions on this file, including what exactly was he told about the allegations against Vance back in 2018? Did he know there was an accusation of sexual misconduct against Canada's former top general at that time? The defense minister squirming under the questioning on this point. Going to play some highlights of that for you in a moment. Meanwhile, the minister has announced yet another judicial review into sexual misconduct in the Canadian military. Does that sound familiar to you? It should. This is a do-over. The government appointed another former Supreme Court judge to investigate sexual misconduct in the military six years ago, producing a comprehensive report. Why are we doing it again? Why was nothing done after the first review? Let's discuss now with my guest. Gary Walborn is the former ombudsperson for the Canadian Forces, and I'm very pleased to welcome him to the show today. Mr. Walborn, thanks a lot for coming on. Glad to be here, Mike. Really appreciate it. Let's go back, uh, Mr. Walborn, to your meeting uh, back in 2018 with Harjit Sajjan, the defense minister where you raised the issues around General Vance, and this is something you have testified about in front of a committee in Ottawa. Can you please tell the listeners, what did you tell the defense minister back then about Vance, these allegations about Vance? 
Well, it's as I testified in front of committee, Mike, I, you know, my comment to uh, the minister were, and my words exactly were, I have an allegation of inappropriate sexual behavior against the chief of defense staff. Those were my words. Those were my exact words. And uh, I don't think there's any ambiguity in that. Yeah, no, I think you've been very clear on that. And I also recall that you said you wanted to show him some, you had some written evidence or something you wanted to show him, correct? Yes, I, ha- I was holding evidence. Yeah, and what happened with that? You tried to give it to him? Well, you know, after the conversation, as I was telling him, I had that, uh, you know, uh, allegation against the chief of defense staff. I reached into my suit pocket to pull out the evidence I was holding, and uh, he pushed back from the table, put up his hands, and said no. And that was the uh, last time I spoke to the minister. Yeah, he said no. He didn't want to see the evidence. Nope. Didn't want to see it. Did, did he explain why he did not want to see it? He never gave me any reason why he didn't want to see it at the meeting, and like I said, after that meeting, I never spoke to him again. Okay, and you were very clear to him that the allegation against Canada's top military leader here was sexual misconduct, that the misconduct was sexual in nature. You were quite clear about that with him. My phrase I used, Michael, was inappropriate sexual behavior. It was the actual allegation that I was holding. Right, okay, this was back in 2018 in a private meeting between yourself and the defense minister. So, Mr. Walborn, let me play a clip here for you of Defense Minister Harjit Sajan here in an interview on the weekend with Global News reporter Mercedes Stevenson. And in this clip here, you will hear uh, Mercedes Stevenson cl- uh, question him very closely. What did he know? What was he told here uh, back in this meeting? And here's how that went. It, we did not know the details. It was only um, did not know the details of the, of the complaint that I stated in uh, in my testimony. But then, what how I did Privy Council Office know that it related to com- sexual harassment? Because they knew it related to sexual what harassment, want- and your office notified them. What- Mercedes, what we wanted to do is making sure we gave it to them to actually look at exactly what needed to happen. Okay, so that's Harjit Sajan, the defense minister, saying that. An allegations, reports of an allegation were passed on to the Privy Council office and that he didn't know the details. He seems to be very evasive on this point about whether he was told by you or not that this was a sexual misconduct allegation against him. What do you make of that? What do you make of his, he seems evasive in answering these questions. Well, Mike, you know, you, you've covered politics for a long time. And I just want to state clearly that I have absolutely no incentive to mislead Canadians or dodge responsibility. I think he does. We both have sworn off oaths of office. And, and you know, I, I'm a guy from Gander, Newfoundland, and I've won and lost a lot of friends over the years just by telling the truth. So here's where we find ourselves. My story has not changed. I'm not on version 5. I'm on the same version I gave in front of the committee. Uh, you know, I keep hearing the stories changing, what I knew, when I knew it, who I spoke to. But the truth is still out there. I told the Minister of National Defense on March 1st, 2018, exactly what I was holding. And my words were very clear. So, you know, I don't know why we're all a little confused now. It was quite clear at March 1st, 2018. Right. And one of the, I guess one of the, uh, the points of concern here is, is what was done with this allegation. Was it followed up? Was it investigated? And as I recall, Mr. Walborn, that the person who came to you in confidence and, and asked you to raise this with officials, uh, did not want to go public with, with the complaint. Is that correct? That is absolutely yeah. what the case was, Mike. Yeah. The person approached me, and one of the things, one of the pillars of Ombudsman is confidentiality. 
They came to me with their complaint. They asked for confidentiality. They wanted their name kept out of it. They didn't want to make this public. But they did ask if I could take it to the minister so that he could be aware. And that's exactly what I did, Mike. Okay, this is four years ago now. A lot of questions being raised about why this wasn't fully investigated at that time. Mr. Walborn, let me ask you now about the judicial review that has just been announced by the minister into sexual misconduct in the military. And I guess it's another judicial review of this issue. We ha- we just had one six years ago. Here is Defense Minister Harjit Sajjan on why another review is necessary at this time. If we're going to look at not just from the reporting side, we're going to be looking at accountability and, and the authorities piece as well. So they're potentially out of this will be organizational changes. But we want to move, work very quickly on this as well. And that's what the role that uh, Lieutenant General Carrion will also be doing is building that foundation to support the work that Madam Arbor will be doing. Okay, speaking there about the latest judicial review that has been ordered into sexual misconduct in the military, if we go back to six years ago, Gary Walborn, this sounds very familiar because we had another review earlier, right? Who was it, Yogi Berra, who said it's deja vu all over again? (laughs) Yeah. You know, here here we find ourselves. uh, You know, we're going to come back to the same conclusions that have been made by not only the former uh, Chief Justice, but this one is going to end up at the same boat. We need an independent organization outside the chain of command, both military and civilian, because there's a civilian factor to this also that needs to be outside the Department of National Defense that has the year of Parliament. And that's where we're going to end up at the end of the day, whether, you know, we spend another year delaying access to victims. That's what's going to happen over this year. Where are they going to go? Who do they talk to while this study is going on? Now that we know the current system in place is just not functioning the way it needs to. Speaking to Gary Walborn, Canada's former Canadian Forces Ombudsperson, about the latest review into sexual misconduct just ordered by the Trudeau government. If, if we go back six years to the review that was done at that time by Marie Deschamps, who was a former Supreme Court judge, as I recall, that was a very comprehensive review. I believe she interviewed around 700 witnesses. She produced a, a bombshell report into sexual misconduct in the military that that shocked the country. There were recommendations for change in that report that just went largely ignored. Like, were there any changes at all that flowed out of that? Well, you know, we did get the uh, the Sexual Military Response Center set up, and Dr. Preston and her group, you know, victim support and education. So, you know, I'm always a guy looking for the positives in this. So I think that's the positive. I think that's an entity that can go forward and be expanded and can be a real cornerstone to taking us forward. But other than that, not much has happened. Uh, you know, we still have a system that reports into both chains of command, military and civilian. We both have victims of, you know, we still have victims afraid to come forward because of a t- potential retaliation. You know, I just reading an article at the Ottawa Citizen this morning about Lieutenant Commander Trotter. Now, someone sent an anonymous email to the citizen this morning saying that he was charged with uh, sexual assault, that we know not to be true. So, you know, the retaliation when you step up into the limelight can be harsh and very, very quick at times. Okay, how endemic is this problem, would you say, in your role as a former ombudsperson who dealt with these type of complaints? Uh, it, it sounds absolutely horrific. The report that came out six years ago talked about hundreds of women who have complained about sexual assault 
rape, sexual harassment. And in the years since then, when very little has been done after that report, we've heard about hundreds of more women who have come forward with complaints. Like, how bad is this in the Canadian military and how urgent should this be for the Trudeau government right now? Well, in my opinion, you know, when we talk about national security, the Department of National Defense would be the cornerstone of that. And I think it's absolutely critical. Uh, this, is, uh, this is a hot file. We have to start thinking about retention of staff, uh, recruitment. Uh, this has been ongoing for a long time. You, you know, you go back six years, Mike. I challenge you to go back to 1998, coming out of Somalia, and subsequent to the McLean's report that came out back in the early 2000s. So this has been going on for a while. You know, and here we go. We're doing the exact same thing we did last time. We're hiring a chief justice. They're going to table a report. We're going to give it back to the same people who are in situ today, and they're going to design a new program? In what world does that work? Okay, the key here is what do we need, an independent mechanism to investigate these reports? Oh, without a doubt. There's got to be someone outside the chain of command. You know, as the Ombudsman's Office, is set up to be independent. Uh, All its financial and human resources authorities come out of the department. And if the department decides to step on those, they can slow your business down very quickly. So it can, at times, make the ombudsman's office a little less effective than it can be. So what we need to do, Mike, is we need to get outside those chains of command. It needs to be an entity that stands alone, that has oversight, and reports to Parliament. And at the end of the day, we can, you know, put band-aids on this and do report after report and do review and spend another million dollars is what we're going yeah. to do. Yeah. But we're going to come back to the same conclusions. This oversight cannot be held within the Canadian Armed Forces or the Department of National Defense. It must be moved outside. Gary Walborn, thank you very much for your time today. I really appreciate you being a guest on the show. Thank you, Mike. All right, welcome back to the show. Let's talk about the one and only Elon Musk now, the CEO of Tesla and SpaceX, one of the most colorful, controversial, and richest CEOs on the planet. He continues to fascinate the business world and beyond. The latest Elon Musk headline, he is set to be the host of Saturday Night Live this Saturday. Uh, some of the cast members of Saturday Night Live apparently not too thrilled about that. Listen to this report here now from Latasha Mercer from ET Canada. This is very weird. Uh, the only thing funny about Elon Musk is his face. I don't know what he's going to be giving uh, the sketches. I don't know what he's going to be contributing as, a, as an actor and as a talent. Um, but I hope after we have to suffer with him for an hour and a half on a Saturday night, that he would redistribute his wealth to us. Okay, well, I don't know. It's got everyone talking. Here's Roz Weston from ET Canada. If he was known as being funny, or even if he was known as being charming, I could understand it. But he's neither of those. I don't think anybody looks at Elon Musk and is like, oh my God, that dude's super rich, super smart, but he is hilarious. Nobody's ever said that. 
Okay, well, I think a lot of people are going to be watching. Nonetheless, uh, Elon Musk set to host Saturday Night Live this Saturday. Let's discuss now with my guest, Ashley Vance. Ashley is a business writer. He wrote one of the definitive books on Elon Musk. Elon Musk, Tesla, SpaceX, and the Quest for a Fantastic Future, New York Times bestseller. He's also written for the New York Times and Bloomberg and many other outlets. And I'm very pleased to welcome him to the show. Ashley, thanks a lot for coming on. Thanks for having me. Okay, I'm thrilled to have you here because uh, I find Musk, Elon Musk to be fascinating, as many people do. And the headlines this week with the uh, all the hype around the Saturday Night Live uh, event coming up this uh, this weekend, what do you make of that? Well, the uh, I found the whole thing kind of funny. I just listening to those clips that you you had. Uh, you know, I think Elon sometimes if people catch him doing a press conference or or an interview, um, he can come off as a little awkward uh, sometimes in his delivery. But he is actually really funny. I mean, he's got a very um, sort of dry sense of humor. He's always making jokes on on Twitter, and I, you know, one of the things I was surprised at when I did all my interviews with him is that is that he is actually he's pretty hilarious and and um and so i'm curious to see how this plays out well if any journalist in the world knows if this guy has a sense of humor or not ashley i think you might be right at the top of the list you've interviewed him um so many times so you know he has a sense of humor then you think he's going to be good here as the saturday night live host I don't know if he's going to be good. <laughs> it could go. It could go a couple of different ways. But uh, but you know he does. You know he grew up in South Africa and and he's got he's got sort of that um, I would say sort of the dry British sarcastic style um, you know comedic sensibility. There was a time a couple of years ago he he recruited some of the guys that worked for the onion satire site and he was going to set up his own satire publication and um you know he and it, you know he uh, he he doesn't take himself too seriously either on twitter so i you know i'm curious to see how this goes he's when he when he gives a presentation he comes off as sort of like a funny for a physicist or an engineer um and i i'm curious to see if, if a little more kind of charisma comes out on okay. tv okay he has made you laugh in the past then yeah absolutely i mean okay. no he's he's <laughs> you know one of the things that drew me to him when i did the book is that he's he's less canned and 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 sort of um restrained than than most ceos and executives that you talk to i mean he was always you know he was he was emotional and and he was funny and i, I just always thought he was pretty genuine and so um if people see a little bit of that side of him i think they will be surprised by the sounds of it all right speaking to ashley vance he's the author of the best-selling biography on elon musk and what drew you to you, you, this book you wrote has been widely widely hailed as one of the definitive books on, on Musk. And what drew, what uh, attracted you to write a uh, book about Elon Musk? Well, I'd been watching what he was doing for a long time. I mean, this all kind of starts way back in in 2012 or so. Um, you know, I live in Silicon Valley, and and he he was a controversial figure here a long time ago, mostly because he'd been talking about SpaceX and Tesla for many, many years and the companies had not been doing very well. And then right around 2012, the companies started to, to really hit on all cylinders. Tesla came out with its Model S car and SpaceX 
reached the space station. And, and so I just started digging in on this guy's life. I was like, man, this guy who um, has been sort of promising the world for a long time and struggling to deliver on it is finally doing it. And, um, you know, I ended up publishing the book in 2015 and some updates after that. But it's it's kind of hard to keep up with him at this point. <laughs> his, uh, his star keeps keeps rising, it seems, every month. Yeah, you did some of the some real groundbreaking kind of work on him for your biography that you wrote, and I know you had uh, a lot of sit-down interviews with him. When you first wrote the book, did he did he cooperate with you on the book, or he agreed to do interviews with you, right? No, yeah, I, I had done I had done a magazine story on him for Business Week, and we'd gotten along okay, um, and and. That sort of sparked my interest in doing the book. Once I saw SpaceX and its factory, I knew I had to write about this guy. Um, but when I went to him and proposed the book idea, he he shot that down. <laughs> he said that uh, um, you know he, he he didn't think the timing was right. He didn't want to participate with it. And um, but I kind of kept at it. So for two years, I interviewed about three hundred people, going back to his childhood in South Africa, his ex-girlfriends, his ex-employees, all that stuff. And eventually he came around and, and agreed to do some interviews. So it's not, it's, it's not like an authorized biography, but he did do interviews for it. Right. And of course, this is a guy who I'm sure when you were doing interviews of people who used to work for him or his associates, I have no doubt that got back to him. And maybe he could have put the hammer down and put a lid on this and said, look, don't don't cooperate with this Ashley Vance guy writing a book about me, but he didn't do that, right? Like he he said it was okay for his associates to speak to you. Yeah, yeah, that's pretty yeah. astute. I I was kind of curious to see how that would play out after he told me he didn't want to he didn't want to participate. But I I sort of I kind of started on the outer sphere of people who I thought probably wouldn't reach out to him right away, and then gradually went in more and more and and tried to see what would happen. And he, you know. He, to his credit, he um, he didn't shut down any interviews, and you know I got to I talked to his mom and his brother and and um, people who were really close to him even before he agreed to do the interview. So and then I think I just wore him down over time. He could tell, yeah, you know, I think he thought I would give up, and then once he could see it was uh, going to be a reality, um, he he agreed to give his his take on things yeah well, that's fascinating well the book's been a great success for you ashley vance is my guest and he wrote the biography on elon musk we're talking about his upcoming appearance here on saturday night live elon musk will be the host which is uh fa- <laughs> going to be interesting to see how that goes um you had many sit-down interviews with him over the years can you tell me the story about the time he he looked you straight in the eye and, and he asked you if if you thought he was insane can you tell tell me that <laughs> what, what what was the context of that yeah, I mean that's you know it's actually kind of how I open open the book and yeah. and it was in this moment where we were we were negotiating everything to see if he would participate. We'd had this long dinner and he'd actually he'd already agreed. Okay, I'll I'll do some interviews with you over the next few months and um, and then we'd had dinner for about two hours. It was pretty intense and we got up and we left and we were just at the door and he just turned to me and he said, you know, do you think I'm insane? I think it was, it was sort of this last, um, gut check of sorts, like, like which side was I on, you know? And I've always thought, um, I think if you're an outsider looking at him and his lifestyle, I mean, it's certainly not conventional and there are people that could, could sort of think he's nuts. I mean, his overarching desires to create 
you know, a human colony on Mars, and I don't think a yes. lot of people sort of wake up in the morning feeling that. Um, but you know, I've never thought he was. He was. Um, I never thought he was insane. I just. I, I. I do think he's an eccentric person. But. Uh, but usually, you know, I find his his motivations tend to be in in the right place. Honestly, a bunch of people probably will die in the beginning. It's yeah. it's tough sledding over there. You We're know? an exploring um, species. Yeah, yeah, exactly. You know, for every, we don't want to make anyone go, so it's, like, <laughs> it's volunteers only. Okay, as Elon Musk there speaking about the dangers of sending people to Mars. This is one of the dreams of the Tesla and SpaceX CEO, a colony of humans on Mars. That's just one of the big dreams from Elon Musk. My guest is Ashley Vance. He wrote the book on Musk, literally. His book is Elon Musk, Tesla, SpaceX, and the quest for a fantastic future. Let's listen to another short clip here of Elon Musk uh, talking about sending people to Mars. Have a listen. I think it's important for the long-term preservation and and ultimately the expansion and extension of the the scope and scale of consciousness uh, and the long-term probably survival of humanity and life as we know it. We must become a multi-planet species. Okay, that's Elon Musk there talking about his dream of colonizing Mars. Ashley, I know you've spoken extensively to Musk about this issue because even when you started writing about him 10 years ago, I mean, this was a dream back then, right? And is is this still a thing for him? Yeah, you know, it absolutely is. I would say it's, it's probably the driving thing in his life. Uh, you know, I I think typical people probably <laughs> create a colony on Mars is, is probably not a goal that a lot of people share. But, you know, as I was interviewing Elon, it became clear to me. I mean, he, he comes from this engineering mindset. He was he was a self-taught software programmer, and you know, I think he thinks the human species needs a, a backup. Um, this yeah. last year has been a pretty interesting um, sort of wake-up call, maybe for a lot of people that something like that might not be a terrible idea. And so, pretty much everything he does even even tesla um and the money that he is generating from that you know ultimately i think will all go towards his quest to create this colony on mars it's going to be it's very expensive and and hard to do but i think that is his um, that's his life goal yeah that is his thing he said that many many times and when he talks about a colony on mars he's not talking about you know just a few astronauts there with some sort of outpost he's talking about like like a large number of people there, right? Yeah, ab- absolutely. Yeah. So currently down in Texas, uh, he's building his new rocket uh, Starship. You know, and this is meant to be the vehicle that will begin these missions to Mars. And and every couple of years, Mars and Earth get get close as close as they're going to be together. And that's really w- when you want to do the launches. And and so in his head, this is not just. This is not just sending a couple astronauts there and, and bringing them back and just or, you know, like we do with the, the rovers today, just kind of plant a flag. He wants to send first, you know, tens of thousands of tons of equipment and machines, things that they could begin sort of mining Mars and making it habitable. And then, like you say, many, many people. Yeah, that's incredible. He has had the last year for Elon Musk. I mean, every year this guy's life as a public figure is is one of turmoil it seems but in the last year in particular uh very controversial and outspoken about the covid-19 pandemic like at one a lot of his tweets were controversial he called he called the panic of the virus very early on he thought it was dumb he, he very you know he very early on predicted the whole thing would blow over and would disappear 
Um, talked about, you know, hydrochloroquine and, and other kind of unproven treatments for, for COVID-19. What, where, why is he doing that? And do shareholders of his companies get worried when he does this kind of freelance tweeting on stuff? That one's a little bit of a mystery to me, I have yeah. to confess. the uh, I mean, it was a strange position for Elon to hold because, if anything, he's been very pro-science throughout his, his career and, and pro-humanity and, and the earth and all that. And so, you know, when he first started um, downplaying the pandemic, I don't know if it threw his investors for a loop, but it, it threw a lot of the loyal customers for a loop because, you know, I think a lot of people buy – Tesla almost is like a, a sort of status type thing to, you know, maybe you're against climate change or, or whatever. And, and that sort of pro science um, thing kind of comes with, with, with that purchase. And so it seemed like Elon was really undermining that. And I saw, yeah, you said there were just thousands of people on Twitter that were really upset with him. And I see, you know, it's carried over even the, some of the Saturday Night Live cast members who've been grumbling about him uh, coming on the show, you know, it seems to be related to this this COVID denialism. I'm not really, and I still can't quite fix on why that happened. And, you know, mostly I think he's something of a libertarian and he's, you know, considers himself a man of action. And I think he really didn't like the idea of the economy shutting down for the most part. Okay, we just got a minute left here, Ashley. Uh, what do you see going forward here for Elon Musk and his companies? This is kind of, kind of a wild card, unpredictable CEO. We've never seen anything like him. He does things that I think maybe sometimes make his stockholders cringe, like whether it's smoking weed with Joe Rogan or whatever. It just <laughs> seems to it seems to kind of send the the talk the, his stocks on a tumble sometimes. Where where do you see him going in the next year? His companies continue to be successful. Your thoughts? We just got a minute left here. Yeah, I mean, you know, he's always hard to predict, but yeah. um, you know, at the, at the moment, look, I think Tesla. You could argue that it's it's overvalued and it's unclear where that's going to go in terms of the stock market. But I think you know, Tesla and SpaceX and some of his other ventures have actually never been better positioned. I mean, SpaceX now is like the United States rocket company. I mean, it's 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 an incredible story, and and everybody's trying to copy Tesla. So, okay. um, you know, I think the next year, the next few years are are very bright, and and I can't see anything that's going to slow down um in the the immediate future ashley it's been great to have you on the show today congrats on the book thanks for coming on thank you so much thank you